I remember this one time. We were in a meeting with a certain music industry luminary, very well respected, very well known. At the time, I was doing a radio show for Rocket FM in Stockholm, Sweden. I had managed to syndicate it to a few other stations. Now, Rocket FM is run out of the University of Stockholm campus. It's college radio. It's not commercial radio. There is no money. It's done out of a genuine love for music, take it or leave it. This so-called music industry authority asked me how much money I was getting for it. I told him, I do it for fun and getting the chance to share some of my favorite bands with people. He smugly laughed, more like cackled in my face, turned to his associate, also present at the meeting, and in front of everyone said, we got to teach this kid how to do business. As much as I felt embarrassed, I didn't feel any shame. I immediately knew I was in the presence of a dinosaur, waiting for the meteor of the modern age to hit this woolly mammoth right between the eyes and send him packing. He was the definition of a know-it-all imbecile, a total music industry fuckface, the kind that we all make fun of. The only thing missing from this guy's persona was the music industry ponytail. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't make money doing music or even doing podcasts. More power to you if you can do it. But to ridicule someone for doing something out of a genuine love and passion for the music is deplorable. Now, I tell you this story to get to my bigger point. And my point is, sometimes it's not the money that you bank on doing things like this, like a podcast. It's the people you meet, the topics that get discussed, and the albums and the bands you get turned on to. For almost every episode of this podcast, I have learned something new or even gotten to meet someone I respected. These are priceless experiences that music industry jerk-offs from yesteryear fail to appreciate. One of the most memorable moments doing this podcast was when London May guested back in 2014 on episode number 81, the Sam Hain episode, which also featured Steve Zing and Peter Adams on the eve of their last Sam Hain tour. If you go back and listen to the episode, during the last five minutes, you can hear the guys personally invite me to see the Sam Hain shows that happened in the States. I was hesitant, didn't know if I could do it, Sounded like I probably wouldn't go. But I did. I flew down to Philadelphia and saw Sam Hain for the first and most likely the last time on October 29th, 2014. I also was able, through London May, to meet the man, Mr. Glenn Danzig himself. These are moments that you cannot put a price on. This is what I cherish. So, to that old music industry dinosaur, I politely say to him... Go fuck yourself. Meeting London and getting to know him happened only through this podcast. I don't take that lightly. And since the Sam Hain tour, I've kept abreast of what he's been up to. So when, when London announced he was releasing an album, my ears perked up. Devolution, the early years, 1981 to 1993, was released this past summer on Cleopatra Records and is a compilation that spans 12 fertile years showcasing London's expansive musical career. From playing drums with Dag Nasty and Reptile House to, of course, 
London May's most prominent appointments as drummer for Sam Hain and Distorted Pony. It's all here. This is a genuine passion project, and you can feel it from the artwork down to the tracks themselves. And it is a must-own release for anyone who loves punk rock, because the bands featured are some of the most renowned and beloved punk rock bands ever. On this episode, we go through London's album, delve deeper into the stories behind some of the tracks. With career retrospectives and compilations, the inclination is to assume that best days are behind, but not in London's case. London CV continues to expand with a new burgeoning project called Personnel, featuring Dennis Lixian of Refused, International Noise Conspiracy, and Invasion on Vocals, Hunter Bergen of AFI on Bass, and Jesse Nelson of Cold Cave and Head Automatica on Synth. We talk about this new band of his and end the podcast with a personnel track. And it is, I am told, the world premiere of personnel. No one, to date, has heard these tracks outside of the band, so... I kind of think this is a scoop. This podcast is supported by Blue Mic Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones, and recently made it on to the What's Hot list on iTunes Podcasts. With over 50 positive ratings on the American and Canadian iTunes stores, respectively, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who has left a rating and or a review up there. With the amount of podcasts being made today, it's nice to know that after doing this for five years, there seems to have been some headway made. Okay, well, let's start this thing. London May is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. The Danko Jones podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Danko's crew will tell for free. I'm sad, but I like to sometimes. Get from fucked up. Stop playing. Hang down, down.
Hello? Danko. London, how you doing, man? <laughs> oh, I'm pretty decent. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I'm getting, I've been uh, looking forward to this for the whole week. So oh, this cool. Is, this is great. The reason why I'm talking to you is because you have a new album out and it's, it's, it's a solo album, but it's, it's also a, it's a <laughs> compilation. It's a best of, it's a look back. It's all this all rolled up in one. And I was very surprised when I saw that you tweeted about it or Instagrammed about it. And then I had to follow up on it with you. And I'm just, I have it. I'm glad that it's released. It's amazing. It kind of puts puts you in perspective if anybody's kind of trying to figure you out. Because even in, in working up to this episode, I was like, oh my God, I'm totally confused. I know I'm going to f- screw this up, but there's just so many. You, your career um, in music touches so many. You're like the Kevin Bacon of punk rock. I mean, you, your your history covers so many bands in so many genres that one can kind of get confused following it. And this album does a really good job as to putting it in chronological order and and putting it into some kind of um, perspective and, and context. Well, you've just sold the record better than I could. I think um, everything that you've said is um, exactly, you know, has is the story of the record is that it's a, you know, it's, it's like a little spider web effect where every, everything is sort of interconnected and, and there is so many, um, you know, weird little coincidences that led to other things and, and jamming with this guy led to this band and that band led to, you know, another band. And it's, thank you for putting that together because a lot of people, um, I've kind of glossed over some of the finer details that I was hoping to connect, uh, with, I don't know, maybe the more, um, the people who want to dig around a little bit and actually read the liner notes, um, because that that to me is the most interesting. It's the stories behind the songs. I think the music is you know is great, and I'm you know very proud of that. But the the way that things worked out, you know, from the moment that I sat down and played drums, and how it kind of took off from there, and how it kind of connected and and disconnected and reconnected in all these different ways, I think is the um, is the real interesting thing for me but it's not really a solo record a lot of people have been right you know confused about that it's really like i kind of curated um like you said kind of a chronological retrospective of of the bands um that i play on uh and i'm i was really happy to have the opportunity to uh unleash some of that music that has been sitting you know, on a shelf somewhere that I thought, well, this is really cool stuff. And this connects the dots between, you know, these, these other bands that people know about. There's a lot of things that happened before that and after that and in between that I'm glad that this, um, you know, fills in some of the gaps there that people have, have asked me about over the years. And that's been the, surprising thing is still how somewhat relevant most of it is 
Yeah, I mean, even though there's a lot of bands and, you know, if you're in the music game long enough, you're go- anyone's going to kind of compile a list of bands or projects that they were part of. But your list, I mean, they're, they're really name bands, like they're just not anyone's list. Um, yeah. You know, it's like the, 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 the bands are, are notable, all of them, most of them. And the ones that aren't, the ones that were new to me, um, I, I going through the record, I was really surprised at, like, wow. Like, for example, Dead, White, and Blue, a band you were part of that put out a record, but I guess it got, like a lot of bands, got caught up in the whole, you guys were signed and then it got frozen or something. Oh, well, that's actually Lunchbox. Lunchbox was the group that was um, signed to Capitol for a, you know, for a moment. And then there was a reshuffling and stuff that you can definitely relate to, you know, being in the business and, and, you know, being kind of swept up in the, you know, alternative bands getting signed to majors and then, you know, stuff just kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Your guy gets fired, you know, the deal goes sour because you don't have the right people working for you anymore. And, you know, but that was a band that was, uh, you know, in 1989, 1990 was, was on the verge. Um, and for one reason or another, it just wasn't, wasn't meant to be dead white and blue, uh, was actually the band that I did after that and trying to kind of learn from the mistakes that happened with lunchbox, which was allowing the the record labels to kind of determine what we would put out. Dead, White, and Blue kind of went back to a DIY thing, and we released a couple singles on our own, and then uh, and then did a uh, an EP with a label called Triple X, and then then got signed, um, and then I left the band, and then they got signed to MCA. Same kind of thing happened to them. They um, they did a record for MCA with Jack and Dino from all this, you know, the Soundgarden like sub pop stuff, mm-hmm. and that record never came out. So, actually, let me apologize. The story relates to Dead White and Blue and to Lunchbox, both right. bands. Like you said, you you were correct in that. I whenever I think of major label. Um, you know, kind of blunders, I think, of Lunchbox, but actually Dead, White, and Blue was was the same as well. So you're correct on that. And it, listening to the tracks, it's like, well, it, it's obviously, if this was the album or if this was the band that was pushed by the majors, it would have sold. It would have gone. The tracks that you include on this compilation are solid. And there's no reason why at that time in the early 90s, those songs and that band couldn't have blossomed into a, a bigger band it just needed, you know, because of the whole structuring of how the record business is, you know, the the bands that get promoted are the ones that usually succeed. It's just how right. it's rigged that way. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think, well, if you're not famous, you're not good. Um, it's it's not like that at all. And in, in fact, a lot of the times it's quite the opposite. But yeah, it's it, it Lunchbox and Dead, White and Blue tracks on your on your comp album is are 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 um uh dead evidence of of of, of exactly that and uh, i i thought i'd i focus in on those tracks and that band especially dead white and blue because i was much impressed and i had no idea who they were there was tracks like obviously the live dag nasty tracks 
And of course, from my perspective, the distorted pony tracks, I was Mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I know this. I'm totally aware of what this is all about. But then there's like Dead, White and Blue. I'm like, wow, this is actually like for its time. I mean, early 90s, this could have been, yeah, this could have been Alice in Chains big, you know? That was, um, you know, what we, it was this power trio. And I got to tell you, the fact that we're talking about this, you will make some people so happy because Dead, White and Blue is the, you know, is one of those bands, you know, a lot of bands slipped under the radar, but really Dead, White and Blue was a band that worked so hard and and really strove to release a lot of music and to really go out there and and conquer the world and it just kind of maybe it fell at a weird time with the rest of with the rest of my career because a lot of people uh you know the records are collectible you know there wasn't there wasn't you know many pressed but um you know I thought that that stuff was was really cool and and definitely you know, we were trying to do something kind of different. And uh, I'm glad that you picked up on that because I listened back to that stuff and went like, oh, this this has to go on it. And there's got to be two songs on it because that band, you know, we went to the effort to release a lot of stuff. Whereas some of the other bands that are on there, a lot of music is recorded, but we never went that next level of actually putting the stuff out ourselves. And so that was... Uh, that was something that I thought, you know, needed to be, um, kind of reintroduced to the world. And uh, an, another thing that, like, a lot of people when they hear your name, they associate you first and foremost with Sam Hain, uh, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, um, myself included. But uh, leading up to the first time you were on the podcast, I mean, I had already a couple of years before or a year before you were even on the podcast, I had already seen that uh, like 45 minute interview of you on YouTube. But I was very surprised. I didn't realize how tied in your history is with the DC hardcore scene and, and, and DC punk. And here on this album, you really let it fly with those Dag Nasty tracks and uh, that Lungfish project, or pre-project, pre-Lungfish project. Um, With Reptile House. Reptile yeah. House, yes. Um, and so I, I was happy to see that there is like some sort of DC representation on the list of, of songs. Sure, sure. Well, that was, uh, you know, that it's funny that Reptile House still people are still interested in reptile house and i'm so happy with that because that was another you know we just were doing our thing in baltimore which is not you know not quite the music capital of the of you know of america i should i should include baltimore i'm sorry you're more from baltimore or or... oh i am from baltimore okay but those scenes whether people realize it they kind of like baltimore people and dc people and they all kind for me as a canadian whenever Mm -hmm. we go down there I would be met with DC people or Baltimore people. So sorry about that. Oh no, 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 that's all right. But it's, you know, we're only 45 minutes away. Right. Um, you know, I spent every weekend in DC going to shows and, you know, admiring the, the DC scene, you know, we didn't really, you know, there was a couple bands in Baltimore, but really, um, it was a huge difference between, you know, uh, the Baltimore bands and what was what was really kicking off in DC 
you know, that was, uh, you know, it was like garage bands in Baltimore, you know, were cover bands in Baltimore, um, or little, you know, kind of little hardcore bands. And then you had DC, which had, you know, the best of the, you know, the early discord stuff, you know, you had the faith and minor threat, you know, government issue and scream and void and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that was such a huge jump, you know, from what we were doing in Baltimore and, um, reptile house really, uh, worked very hard and we, you know, we played a lot and we, we worked on our, on our songs a lot and to get the ear of, of discord because discord at that point was, I think they still kind of have a DC only, um, sort of aesthetic that they really only work with, with bands from the DC area. Um, and so, and you know, we had, it was, it was, even though we were 45 minutes away, it was very difficult for us to get shows in DC. Oh, wow. Um, Oh yes. Oh yeah. We probably, when I was in the band, it took us like two years to get a show in DC. (laughs) Wow. No kidding. No kidding. So we played, everywhere else on the east coast i mean we played boston and rhode island um and pennsylvania before we ever played dc you know we played north carolina with coc before we ever played dc is that that's crazy so is that because of like maybe how hardline and and protective dc people were like dc scenesters or is that I would say, I would say, yeah, it's, it was a little closed, you know, if you weren't a touring band, I mean, they had enough, put it this way, they had enough awesome opening and support acts in their local scene for when a national band came through that there probably wasn't much room for us to get a slot, you know? Um, and then when they did have, um, you know, uh, and maybe I think it really took us. I mean, we played with the Bad Brains in Baltimore before we ever even got an, you know, a slot on a five band bill in D.C. You know, um, you know, playing <laughs> at seven o'clock, you know, in the in the evening on a you know on a Thursday night. You know, um, it just was it was kind of who you know and whether you were cool. Baltimore definitely had kind of a. Uh, I don't think we got a lot of respect and I think we really had to work hard for it. Um, just being from Baltimore was kind of like being from the sticks, you know, I don't know what, you know, it was, um, I don't know. I don't want to say anything bad about Baltimore, but it just didn't have the, the, um, the cool aesthetic that DC had. And so we really had to work our way, you know, up from the, from the slime to, you know, achieve something. And what I think eventually happened is that we made fans with some national acts. If it wasn't for like Jello Biafra, we never would probably would have broken through in DC because Jello Biafra contacted us directly and said, you need to open for us. Wow. And, and we opened for the dead Kennedys at this huge show in DC, which we would never have got on our own. Oh my gosh. It was like, you know, like a breakthrough show for us, but we never would have gotten it on our own. Wow. That's amazing. And, um, you know, and then once Ian got involved, it got the ball rolling. And after, 
I left the band um, mm. to join Sam Hain, all of a sudden, Reptile House was playing at the 930 Club. Reptile House was playing with Embrace and Rites of Spring. And, you know, they kind of became part, more part of that Discord scene, um, you know, even when I was in the band. Right. But before that, we couldn't get, you know, we had to do everything on our own. Wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. Out, outside of the DC, you know, outside of the DC scene. And then, you know, and then Reptile House broke up and Ian and Danny from from Reptile House really kind of uh, connected, you know, in a really deep way. And that kind of launched, you know, the, the lungfish stuff. Right. Being in Reptile House um, and the connection that that band made with DC, was that how you were able to uh, fill in or, or do that Dag Nasty tour um, that yielded those two tracks on the compilation? That was, let's see. Um, well, when I left uh, Sam Hain, the like, I put out like five calls, one to Cello Biafra. Um, oh, who else? Um, uh, a couple different people around the country looking for, looking for a gig, right. you know, like, Hey, you know, I know that Jello, the DKs had just broken up and, and I was, you know, seeing if Jello wanted a drummer, um, who else? Um, just random people that I had met over the years, um, looking for work. And I called Ian and he said, um, that, that Dave Grubbs from squirrel bait was living in DC now and was looking to put together a band and squirrel bait. I don't know if you've ever heard of them was a, was a yep. Louisville yep. band Oh yeah, that I was just like completely, um, thrilled with, you know, and that eventually sl- turned into slint, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I ran back to Baltimore and, hooked up with Dave Grubbs and then uh, there was a we didn't have a bass player or the bass player that we had you know hadn't been playing that long and I had heard that the bass player from the Descendants was actually living in DC and playing in Dagnasty but I didn't know if that was like a permanent situation and so I thought well I should call up and see if the bass player from the descendants is available to jam in a new band. And I got the number. I think Ian gave me the number for the dag house. The dag house was a, you know, a house where the dag nasty guys lived. Mm -hmm. And I just was bold enough that I just called up and I said, Hey, I'm looking for the bass player, you know, from the descendants who's there in DC and, you know, I've got this new band. I wanted to see, you know, if he was interested in playing. And the guy who answered the phone was Brian Baker. And he said, actually, you know, Dag Nasty is, is ready to go. We've got a new record and our drummer can't, uh, do the tour because he had, he has like a, he had like a health problem. He had like a tumor on his arm or something. Um, and so they, he had to sit out this tour and so instead of me getting Doug carry on from the descendants into this Dave Grubbs band, right. I ended up being pulled into the Dag Nasty world from that call. Um, because I had, 
you know, it just was like a random thing. You kind of go in for, you know, you go in to try to hire somebody and you end up getting hired for another job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so I, as much as I liked the Dave Grubb project, um, it was very enticing to get back out on the road because they had a, you know, they had a new record coming out and they had a tour that was already booked. And so it was like, learn the songs and go on tour. And at that point, I really wanted, I thought that was the the quicker route to getting kind of, you know, back into the, the, the thick of things, you know, after the, the Samhain debacle, which had left me, you know, super bummed out and super depressed and frustrated. So I kind of took the next fast track, um, uh, thing that I, that I could, that I could latch on to. There's a couple of other acts on the compilation that, well, there's one in particular that really raised my eyebrow and it's disconnected from the DC scene. And that is Dogpile. <laughs> because aren't they Canadian? No, that is, those are dudes from Orange County, California. Is the name, do they, do they share a name with another band? Yeah, there's a dog pile in Canada. Um, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that put out, I think, a, an album or two. Uh, I'm not too familiar with them, but I'm familiar with the name as a regional name. Um, well, my apologies to the to the to the other dog pile. Um, it's funny the band that is on my record, the dog pile band, is on my record. Had a couple names, and I thought dog pile was the worst. <laughs> as far as <laughs> I just wasn't, I thought it was the worst. And when I went back to ask the guys from you know from that band about putting the song out on the record. And I was like, so what name did you guys want to go under for this record? <laughs> kind of like kind of like we can kind of rewrite history right, right here. Right. Nobody ever knew. And and uh Bose, the guy who sang and and you know and and pretty much wrote the songs, was like, Oh, it's dog pile. And I was like, You you sure? Because we could be anything right now. <laughs> and he was like, No, it's dog pile. And I was like, Well, and I think we had played a couple shows and his his rationale was we played shows under that name. It should stick. Right. Um, and so, cause I think the tape that I have that has the songs on it just says London's OC band. That's better. Orange County band. Better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, no, no disrespect to, to, to my dog pile band or the Canadian dog pile band. It, I just thought it was a, um, Dogpile to me is dog shit, you know. Right. Um, but uh, it's punk rock, and and that's what the band was called. And and I think I had gone through some episodes, maybe in the past, where I had been too pushy about stuff. So sometimes you got to choose your battles. And one of the battles that I just kind of gave up on was like, okay, you guys can name the band. <laughs> right. You know, and some of those things you look back and go, ah, maybe I should have pushed a little harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so uh, that solves that for me. Because yes, I was like, yes. wow, it is there was, a Canadian connection on this album? So. Oh, no. And and thank you for reading the liner notes and, and like kind of doing a little homework on this. It's exciting to talk to somebody who is kind of, you know, um, you know, taken the information there and, you know, wanted to know more about it because that, that I think is the most, the thing, hopefully I said that, that, that carries the album is the stories behind the songs and the, you know, all the amazing people that I crossed paths with and, and had the chance to, to, to play with. It's, um, you know, I'm really, uh, really excited to, to share stories about that because I think that is um, you know kind of the the thing that that whenever I meet bands you know that I kind of grew up listening to I always want wanted to know how things were connected and how did you join how did Chuck Biscuits join Black Flag after being in DOA right you know and so for many years you just you had no idea how this Canadian guy ended up in Southern California. <laughs> right, right. And then you find out, you know, 10 years later, oh, that's a crazy story. Well, I wanted to kind of share some of my kind of get in the van stories on my record. Well, there is one track, the last track that begs for the story to be told, and that is that Circle Jerks. Um, it says, is it like an audition? Track? Yeah. Yeah. What, that what was, is that about? That was... Um, I had when I was in in Lunchbox, Keith Morris used to come and see us, um, and Keith Morris uh, asked me to come and try out for the Circle Jerks when they were kind of gearing up to do this reunion. Um, I think it was in like nineteen ninety ninety uh, ninety two or ninety three or something like that, maybe ninety two, right? Um, and you know, the Circle Jerks were, were my, you know, top three hardcore bands at that point, you know, being, um, a fan of, uh, being a fan of Lucky Lehrer and of course of Chuck. Um, I was, I had always wanted to play in the Circle Jerks, always wanted to play in the Circle Jerks. So when he called me out of the blue and said, you know, would you come and try out? I, you know, I said, of course, and that was a rehearsal tape, um, of us, of us playing, I guess it goes on for about half an hour and there's about six or seven songs. Mm -hmm. And I had done some, it was, it was interesting. I had done some, um, uh, these auditions before, uh, for some other bands, I think it was it was after it was after Lunchbox. I don't know. There was a couple there was a couple months in between these bands where there would just be kind of these cattle call auditions for these big bands, right? You know, and you'd go in and you'd kind of knock them dead, and you wouldn't get the gig. And I would kind of go into like a a, a spiral of depression, going, "I really suck. I'm no good." I don't know why I didn't get that gig. You know, is it because of this is because the other thing. And so I, whenever I went to an audition from that point on, I would tape the audition, you know, because then you could kind of go back and go, Oh, that's pretty fucking good. If I didn't get the gig, it's not because I'm a shitty drummer. It's because politics or this or that, or you don't look right or any of those things is much for me was much more palatable, palatable 
than not being able to, you know, be a kick-ass drummer. Yeah. yeah. And, um, cause that'll, that'll throw you off, you know, that'll, that'll throw you off your game. And, you know, uh, being an actor these days, you know, I go in and, you know, I do the best that I can at these auditions, but ultimately it doesn't really matter if you're a good actor in a lot of, in a lot of situations, it's, it's who, you know, it's what you look like. Mm -hmm. It's what they have in mind. It's the talent pool. You know, if they've got 50 guys and somebody's a little taller or a little shorter, or a little fatter, a little thinner, they can get exactly who they want. They mm-hmm. don't have to go, well, if this guy had a mustache and a wig, he'd be perfect. Right. There's 10 guys with a mustache, you know, with a real mustache, yeah. you know, and right color hair right behind me who are decent as well. Um, and so, but with the drumming thing, it was always kind of like, if I didn't get the gig after I know that I crushed at the audition, it would make me, you know, pretty self-conscious about my playing. And so I would just go in and I would tape these auditions. So if I knew if I didn't get the gig, I might be able to like actually learn from it and pinpoint, you know, okay, this is something I probably need to work on because I did a lot of those. Um, and so, but also playing with the circle jerks, if that's the only chance in my life that I'm ever going to play with the actual <laughs> circle jerks, I wanted a fucking you know, I want the memento. And so my drum roadie taped the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And so when I, you know, was putting this, this record together and going through boxes of tapes, I found that. And I was like, Oh, wow. I wonder, I wonder if this will, you know, will kind of stand up, you know, 25 years later. And I thought it did. And I thought it was part of, you know, I thought it was a good, a good, a good little bonus thing to add there. And then when I contacted the circle jerks about it, they were like, sure, we please go do that. We're stoked. We're stoked to be on that. Were there tracks that you had found that you wanted on the album um, and you found the people or you couldn't find the people that, you know, they didn't allow you or for some legal reason you were not able to put out? Everything is on there that I hoped would be on there. Of course, as you would expect, the the you know the 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 feather in the in the cap was the Sam Hain track, and that took months and months and months of you know wrangling and catching people on the right day and you know and and kind of massaging that deal to work, you know. Um, but everybody else, you know, Dag Nasty. So people were more than happy to be part of this. Uh, and that was a surprise. And the, and the label was really happy. They're just like, hold on, you're bringing in a Circle Jerks track that's approved? And I'm like, uh, hey, you know, it's, I, I, don't, I don't know what I've done to deserve this sort of, you know, kind of green lighting on everything that I tried to put on the record. Everybody said okay. Uh, London, on my version of the album, there is no Sam Hain track. Um, did you get it on iTunes? Yeah. So is that Sam Hain track only on the hard copy? It is. Okay. It is. That was one of, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's come up and I've individually answered people about this. But let me say to the world. Glenn stipulated that the Sam Hain track would only be on the CD and on the LP, that it is not available digitally. 
I think that's fair. Um, the fact because none of the Sam Hain stuff is available, right? You know, legitimately online. Of course, it's illegitimately online everywhere. But as far as like an official release, there's no Sam Hain, um, you know, on iTunes or Spotify or any of that stuff. That's only fair, and I, I mean, that's really cool that there is the that Sam Hain track on there. Yeah, there is so much. I put so much work into the packaging of the album and the CD because there's pictures and set lists and stories about all the songs. There's a, it's 3,500 word essay. I mean, it's a, it's a eight page booklet that goes, that goes with the CD and, uh, the LP that really, um, you know, I really dug deep you know, because everything is online now. Everybody's every picture that everybody's ever taken. So I really had to kind of go, you know, into my really deep private collection and say, okay, here's some stuff that nobody has ever seen. Um, because everybody's putting, you know, cool pictures up on the internet. So I had to kind of work hard to find stuff that, that I know that nobody else has ever seen. So it's not burning up the charts. It's not, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, hit songs on it. It's all pretty raw and, and, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, passion and, and energy in that project. But as far as, uh, you know, it's not a top 40 record. It's really geared towards, um, I don't know, maybe some drumming fans, you know, probably just more collectors and people who are interested in, you know, historical things. Cause that's, that's more of, you know, it's a, it's a time capsule. I know? think it's a, I think it's a real interesting and great release. I'm, I'm happy that, you know, there's labels out there that cater to the, these kinds of releases, very particular niche kind of releases like this. So I, I'm glad it exists. Well, same here. And I, I think they really, uh, Cleopatra, um, you know, really were, uh, yeah, they were really passionate about it. I mean, it was their, it was their idea. And I thought, who's interested in that stuff? And they said, well, we think enough people to make our money back at least, you know, and that was, I mean, you can, certainly identify with the changing world of record labels and how tentative people are to invest uh, time and money and manpower into, you know, records that they really have to, to make their money back or else these labels are on the, the verge of just collapsing. Um, nobody's taking chances anymore with yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you was in Philadelphia. Right. That's when we met up at the Sam Hain. I think it was the second last Sam Hain show of that tour. And uh, since then, you know, you've you've put this out and and it's all about all your bands and all all the the history of of you and all all the the bands you've been in, but Leading up to this episode, you you uh, hipped me, tipped me off to this new band that you were a part of. Can we talk about that? Of course, yeah. This is this is the um, uh, the world premiere is uh, you know is giving giving you uh, a chance to 
put this out on your show. This nobody's heard this. This is uh, this is awesome. I'm very flattered that this is going to happen here. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a project with called it's called Personnel. Yeah, Personnel, and it features. I mean, Dennis from Refused International Noise Conspiracy on vocals, and uh, who who else is who's a part of it? Uh, um, Hunter Hunter Bergen. From, that's right. From AFI and Jesse Nelson from Head Automatica, and he was in Cold Cave with uh, with me and Hunter for a moment. And this is a project that has been in the works for a couple years, and we finished this record uh, last year, and we are trying to get some traction with it. Um, and so we've got a four-song EP that's in the can that we are hoping to introduce to the world and and go from there with a with a full length and and you know depending on people's schedules and and uh you know energy and and um we're going to see if we can kind of take it to the to the next level of albums and shows and so this is a uh a project that's been near and dear to me for you know for some time because it was um you know, playing with people that I respected and, and were energetic and enthusiastic about playing music that was not necessarily what people know us for. Uh, how did you meet up with Dennis? Um, I met Dennis, um, at a refuse show maybe four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. And, he was a Sam Hain fan and I was a refused fan and we connected that way and, and stayed in touch. And then I guess when we, when Hunter and Jesse and I started writing music together and creating all these like really cool instrumental tracks, which is what we gave to Dennis to sing over. He was somebody that, that I thought would be a good, a good person to, you know, to, uh, to sing on this, you know, like who's really cool, who, and it, not only was it the, the refuse stuff that excited me, you know, for obvious reasons, but his other band invasion, which, which I really liked. And I really liked kind of the more, uh, poppy melodic, uh, elements of that. And, you know, there's, there's synth on those records and, you know, it's much different from, from refused, and so, and he's, you know, like the best front man in the business. And so <laughs> it was like, well, if Dennis would be into this, how cool would it be to, you know, put together a, a project with him, you know, one of these days, you know, you just meet people, you know, you, you've had the same experience where you meet people and you make connections and you get along and you kind of go, one of these days we should work on something together. And that's just kind of how this, this all happened. Um, you know, back in the old days, people would do split seven inches and people would guest on people's records and it would pretty much, uh, intermingling of bands all the time. And it doesn't happen as much as it used to. Um, but this was something that, that everybody kind of, it fell together at the right time. And in between people's schedules, we were able to put this all together 
And um, originally it was going to be four songs with Dennis and then four songs with another singer and four songs with another singer. And it was going to be this kind of compilation record where we would be kind of the, the, the band and then different singers would sing different kind of acts of this, maybe this, this grand play that we had where it was a concept album. Um, and it worked out so well with Dennis that we decided that maybe we should just kind of just go with Dennis. He kind of hit it out of the park on those four songs you sent me. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I know that he's, uh, he's very happy with it and that's what kind of, you know, made us kind of stop and go, okay, well maybe we should just do this with Dennis. Yeah. Uh, I was really impressed with how Dennis was able to, I feel morph his voice to fit that genre of music. You know, we had no idea how it was going to sound. It was kind of like the son of Sam project where we had all the music and we sent these instrumentals to a, to a singer that we liked. And then all of a sudden they show up and the tapes rolling and they start singing and we've never heard it before. And we go, (laughs) what, we didn't tailor make our things to Dennis and he didn't, you know, or to Davey Havoc when we did Son of Sam, Mm -hmm. they just heard it and had the talent and the, the, the vision to, you know, craft their thing to make it part of the jigsaw that worked together, you know? Um, cause yeah, we just sent those basic tracks to, to Dennis and he recorded all that stuff in, in Sweden with his brother. Right. Uh, without any, we didn't do anything. We didn't do any, you know, we gave him actually those songs. There's a story behind that. There's a concept that each of those songs represents like, uh, like a chapter in a book. And so to, to kind of give him a challenge, we said, this is, this is the story behind this, this piece of music. And then he actually wrote lyrics and melody based on kind of a, a concept that we wrote for those four songs. Um, and so there's like a, there's a journey between songs one through four. Um, and we gave him sort of a, a, an idea of what we were looking for. But as far as melody and lyrics, he really took that on himself. That's amazing. I, and and we didn't, it wasn't like we got back a bunch of snippets and then chopped it in to make verses and choruses and bridges. Those are all just, that's just all him. Right. Singing, singing on top of the tracks that we gave him. That's great. <laughs> no, it's re- it's very impressive. The whole project. Thank you is, very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've noticed on his Instagram, he's refused his finishing up the tour for their this this record they've been promoting, and so I think he's going to have some more time for invasion and for personnel. Well, that's that's the. Um... Hopefully, as I said, you know, everybody's busy and and when one person's schedule opens up, another person's schedule fills up. And it's been kind of a um, I don't know what's it's not it's not a um, it's just been kind of a scheduling nightmare, you know, because as soon as we'll get some momentum, you know, to try to do more stuff, you know, one person gets gets busy with their other projects. And we can't you know, you can't expect people to put down their you know, their, their main gig for this, because it's, you know, nobody's heard it. Nobody, you know, um, it's unproven. 
all we have is the music and hopefully if we can get some material out there it will build on that and um i think you know hopefully become a priority where everybody has time to make it you know to make it work but until then um we have to wait for the time where everybody has you know the time and the energy to to devote to it well if the ball has to start rolling it's going to start rolling now because we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end this episode with a track so let's let's go to this track all right all right uh much love to you danko and we'll talk soon thanks london thanks man anytime brother it, it was great it was awesome Take care, Danko. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Bye, brother. Bye-bye. There's nothing under this shell Or maybe out there there's something more Been dragging myself around now I think it's time Yeah.